Welcome back to Gold Shields. This is Dan Murphy along with my partner in crime, Tom Smith. Every week we bring you the most compelling true crime cases from the mouths of the detectives, investigators, and those who chronicle the work of those great men and women right here on Gold Shields. Let's talk a little bit quick before we begin, though, about Fairline Defense. Great friend of the show, FairlineDefense.com. If you like to carry a weapon and you believe in your Second Amendment rights and you legally carry, you're going to need something behind that. Fairline Defense provides an incredible set of benefits uh, for a very affordable rate. It's peace of mind. And you have, if you have a tough split-second moment in your life when you use that firearm, you're going to need Fairline Defense. Criminal Defense, unlimited. Up to a million five in civil defense expenses and attorney's fees so you get the best defense you can have. Critical response team, 24-7. $1,000 a day per diem in case you miss work. And 100% payback, no payback if you lose, I'm sorry. Ensuring peace of mind. You either win or you pay nothing. So folks, don't wait for trouble to find you. Get ahead of it with Fairline Defense. Carry, carry with peace of mind. Tom, who do we have today? We're both excited about our guest. Yeah, we got Robin Maharaj, who is a freelance uh, journalist who did an incredible story, an incredible book on Jeffrey Dahmer with the detective who ran the case. It's going to be a compelling, interesting, seat of your pants kind of interview because what she has is just the facts are great involving the most infamous serial killer in American history. So uh, tune in, stay tuned. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Hey, here we are back at Gold Shields, as promised. This is Dan Murphy along with Tom Smith, and our guest today is Robin Maharaj, who is an outstanding journalist and has done a book that, if you have any interest in serial killers or specifically Jeffrey Dahmer, you have to read. Now, one of the things we pride ourselves on here, right, Tom, at Gold Shields, is we want to give you that backstage pass, right? So a backstage pass for us means something different than just the plain story. What did the detectives and investigators experience? What did they go through? What was their uh, life like during the case and afterwards? Um, and many of these cases we highlight changed the lives forever. Um, Tom, what is it that you learned uh, in, in doing some research about Robin's book? And we'll introduce her in one second. But this is a, just a fascinating, fascinating look at this case. It is because it's an angle that you don't hear about much. Uh, you don't hear about the way this book was put together too often. And it's a collaboration of just two great people working towards one infamous subject, and that's Jeffrey Dahmer. Uh, talk about your just famous serial killers uh, for all the wrong reasons, obviously, but they do become celebrities. And Jeffrey Dahmer was one of them. And Robin's story along with Patrick uh, Kennedy, who's a uh, Milwaukee detective who was very much involved in the in the case of Jeffrey Dahmer and them getting together and coming up with this book was remarkable. Uh, we spoke to Robin the other day and were just dumbfounded by the mm -hmm. amount of facts and, and her story, which we can't wait to get to. So we're not going to wait too much longer. So Robin, <laughs> welcome to Gold Shields and uh, thank you for coming. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on your show, you guys. This is going to be wonderful, and I look forward to our, our conversation and discussion. 
So you, you research and work on, you're a freelance journalist and work on a lot of different subjects. What drew you to the Dahmer case? Tell us how this all began. Uh, well, as I uh, mentioned, and as you said in your introduction of me, I am a freelance writer. And so what happens very often with freelancing, um, especially if you're working with editors or you're working with people who are giving assignments is, you know, you don't really have much of a say. They kind of say, can you go and do the story? And you're testing your mettle because you're doing the research. And when you're a young writer, it's fascinating because you're learning about subjects that you don't really know a lot about. Um, and it's fascinating to talk to people who are experts you know, on the subject. But um, I guess when I hit about 40 years old, I thought, you know, I just kind of want to work on things that I'm interested in. What do I read about? What am I interested in? What do I like to talk about? And uh, true crime has always been, you know, a subject that I've been interested in. I like investigative discovery programs. I like um, true crime books. I've always, even as a young reader, like, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old, I was fascinated by detective stories. So, um, I thought true crime is an area that I wanted to uh, explore as a freelance writer. And um, so around that time, I was sort of thinking of what I was going to write about. Uh, Jeffrey Dahmer didn't immediately come to mind, but I was thinking it'd be interesting to write about someone who was, you know, sort of well known, but maybe look at a slightly different way at, at them, like look at them in a slightly different way. Um, but I'd seen a show and it was sort of talking about, you know, the, the top 10 most evil people in history. And he was listed, Jeffrey Dahmer was listed as number three. So it was like Hitler, Stalin, Jeffrey Dahmer. And I guess my <laughs> feeling was like, you know, I know he was a bad guy. I know he did a lot of awful things and he was, you know, he, he killed people. But, you know, is he really quite up there with those guys, like with Stalin and with Hitler? So it kind of made me curious. And I thought, you know, I really want to learn more about him. I'd read sort of the highlights and I knew a little bit about what Dahmer had done, kind of knew the timeline a little bit, but I thought, you know, I'm more interested in finding out why he did what he did. And um, I looked at a couple of the books and articles and things that were out there. And a lot of them really focused on sort of the grisly angles of the Dahmer story, um, sort of the gratuitous uh, violence and and um, sort of the, the goriness of it. And I said, you know, I'm not interested in that. I want to really find out about Dahmer himself. So uh, that's kind of where I got the idea. And then I had seen an interview on YouTube with Kennedy and uh, Christopher Thompson, who is a local filmmaker, well, local in that he's in Wisconsin. And um, he had just done a film about Jeffrey Dahmer and he had interviewed Pat Kennedy and a couple of other people. And so I immediately thought, you know, I got to talk to Kennedy. He's, he's going to be a good person, a good source for me to talk to about this article because he spent so much time with Jeffrey and he must have had some kind of an idea about sort of what was going on with him in his mind when he was talking about these crimes and when he was talking about his victims, you know, what, what, what else was he saying? And um, so I reached out first of all to Christopher who put me in touch with Pat. And uh, I just basically told him, you know, I want to do an article on, on Dahmer and I kind of want to find out, you know, a little bit more about him in terms of who he was personality wise and, uh, and what led him to become a criminal and a, and a murderer. And um, so we just began uh, Patrick Kennedy and I just began this email correspondence for a couple of months. And in the course of that correspondence, uh, I guess he realized that, you know, I wasn't, I was serious about what I was saying. I didn't want to just sort of do something that was going to be gratuitous. I really wanted to kind of ask some questions and get some answers. So he 
did a couple of things. He said, you know, I've got some notes and reports and different things that I've, you know, kind of accumulated over the years. You can have a look at them if you want. So he was going to send them to me. Um, he said, I'm happy to be an interview or interviewee for you, if you like. And, uh, and then he invited me to come down to Wisconsin. He said, I'm going to be in Madison for a film festival. Chris's film is being shown there. Uh, why don't you come down and we can actually do this face to face? Because I think at that point he thought perhaps I could be useful to him in terms of somebody who could uh, look at whatever writing he had. Like he sort of said, you know, this is as much as I can do with it. I kind of need to work with a writer and an editor. You sound like you could do this. So we sort of talked about maybe working together and we met and we had a lovely dinner in Madison and uh, we talked about Jeffrey Dahmer amongst other things, but we talked a lot about Jeffrey Dahmer and he kind of uh, walked me all through everything that happened in terms of his first encounter with Jeffrey Dahmer. And then um, after that, we, we uh, decided, okay, we're going to continue our communication and continue to work together. So I came back to Canada, to Manitoba, where I live, and he went back to Milwaukee. Um, and the day or two after we had had our interview, he sent me his reports and notes. And he said, let's just keep the uh, the dialogue open here. Let's just keep going. So about four days later, I got a message from the director that I mentioned, Christopher. And he said, I don't know how to tell you this, but he said, Patrick had a fatal heart attack at home and he died. He was home alone and he, he died. So he was 59 years old, still a very young man in my, in my opinion. And um, so I was crushed. I was like, how, you know, how could I have just seen this man five days ago and had dinner or sat across the table from him and had these, you know, really interesting conversations. And now he's just gone. So, you know, I kind of was looking through his material when I found out about his passing. Um, and I thought, you know, I'm just going to continue on as if he's still here. I'm going to continue to make my notes, make my suggestions. And the least I can do is I can give it to his widow, to his, uh, his wife, Patty, and let her decide what's going to happen with it. And in the meantime, I'm going to write my article. I'll send her a copy of it and we'll see. So uh, once I had sent her the article, she said, you know, I think you really had a good handle on the relationship between Kennedy and Dahmer. So she said, you know, uh, you know, this nothing's going to happen with your notes. It's just going to go back into his desk drawer and nothing may come of it. And to me, that was just that was just too sad. You know, it's like this wonderful detective story. I felt like, you know, he passed away. That shouldn't be preventing him from his story coming out. So I said, I'm going to do what I can. So that was in 2013. Um, I continued to kind of work on it, put it together and, and flesh it out, if you will. And then it came out as Dahmer Detective in 2016. Uh, Wild Blue took it over and sort of turned it into Grilling Dahmer, which is the book that you know now. And that came out in 2021. So that's amazing. Uh, Patrick Kennedy, talk um, about like, you, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say Patrick Kennedy go had ahead, the lead role, lead role in the interrogation. And it was something like yes. 12 hours a day, six days a week. Uh, he spent a lot of time with Jeffrey Dunn. Very intense. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and he developed very a rapport, intense. which is very critical. Hello, he, he developed a, a rapport yeah. with Jeffrey Dahmer, correct? Yes. I'm sorry, you just froze up there for a second. Um, I'm sorry, yes. yeah. And, and kind of how that came about, like how Dahmer come, came to New Kennedy, is that, you know, like when Dahmer was first in his apartment and this last victim of his had escaped, you know, had got out on the street midnight, uh, handcuffed, dangling from his arm, runs into these police and, you know, police car, these um, uniformed police and says, you know, I just want to get these cuffs off. 
And he was hoping that they would have a key that they could actually take the cuff off. And they said, you know, these are not the same that we issue. So we're going to have to go back to the place where you had the handcuff put on and then we'll get the key. And so he didn't want to go back. Like he was scared. He was terrified. He didn't want to go back to that apartment, but they convinced him it's okay. You're with us. You know, we'll, you'll be safe. So they all went back. Uh, Tracy, um, uh, Edwards was the fellow and the two police in uniform. And so they basically are at the threshold and they're just saying, you know, we don't have a lot of questions. We, we don't ask you a lot of stuff. We just want to get the key for this guy so he can get his, the handcuff off and then everyone can get on with their night. And um, he, of course, Dahmer is like, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Come on in. Uh, he had been drinking that night. And uh, so he was a little bit inebriated. He didn't real, realize, of course, that he didn't have the key handy. He didn't know where the key was. But he was sort of fumbling around trying to pretend to find it. And uh, that's when the police, of course, noticed the smell in the apartment. And they noticed, um, you know, these photographs that were kind of lying around. And they said, you know, what is this guy doing with these pictures that were clearly taken from the medical examiner, examiner's office because it was parts of bodies in these photos. And then they realized these are photos that are taken in the room where we're standing. And so they said, grab him. Like one guy said to the other cop, grab him. And they got him down and he was wrestling around. He was fighting them. And so he was on the ground and that's when they handcuffed him. Then that's, you know, they called the police and then that's when the, um, the uniformed police came. And that was the very first time that, uh, Kennedy met Jeffrey. He actually walked through the door and, and uh, the first thing Jeff said to him was, you're not going to beat me up too, are you? And Kennedy said, no, I'm not here to beat you up. He said, let's get him up and we'll, you know, I'm here to, to listen to you. I'm here to, I want to talk to you and I want to listen to your story. And so for whatever reason, that really resonated with Dahmer and he never, you know, he never forgot the book got that. So he went down to the state, uh, to the um, police station and uh, he said, I'm not talking to anybody, but I'll talk to Kennedy. So he was, you know, he made it really clear that the only person he was going to tell anything to was going to be Patrick Kennedy. Wow. wow. And then, you know what, as a detective, you take advantage of that. You know, you, you take advantage of that. When you have a perp that wants to talk and he's keyed on one guy, the rest of the team backs off. It's all yours. And you give it mm -hmm. to him because that's what's going to work. Uh, especially when you have a request like that from what you are potentially staring at. Uh, now let's go into a little bit, uh, you know, and like I said, your, your story is so compelling because you're actually giving a firsthand account, but not having a firsthand account, <laughs> you know, through, through mm -hmm. Patrick's great work and note taking, uh, which led you to do this and the honor that you show him, I'm going to say again, later in the show, but you do because you could have very easily just went, uh, you know, oh my God, it's horrible. He's gone. That's it. And then just went on. And you didn't do that. You know, you took his his hard work, his dedication, and a case that is, I mean, as historic as they come, and kept them alive. You know, you kept his spirit alive. You kept his work alive with his mm -hmm. notes. And you didn't give up on that. You could have done it, very easily done it. And you didn't want to. And, and I think with the help of his wife, uh, got you going and came up with this book, which was incredible to do. And it's a great honor. You, you did a great job, Robin, with it. So with mm -hmm. that being said, tell us a little about that night that Patrick put in his notes about Dahmer's residence and responded mm -hmm. there. And that, actually, the anniversary wasn't too long ago. It was January, uh, July 22nd. That's right. So it was only yeah. last week was actually mm -hmm. the anniversary of this. Uh, right. What did Patrick talk about? that night walking into an absolute horrific scene. 
you know, well, initially they had gotten this call, uh, you know, and, and you guys will know this uh, more than anyone, you know, the, when you're a cop, you're sort of on a rotation. And so, you know, he came in at midnight and and uh, they're all in homicide. They're waiting for that call, you know, and they're sort of in this rotation. And and uh, so they they you know, he walks in, he's getting his coffee, he's talking to his partner, kind of figuring out, you know, sort of the the plan for the night. And then their captain comes in and says, you know, there is a call that's just come in. Uh, something about a head in the fridge, you know, you're going to have to go check it out. And they're, of course, thinking like, this is a joke. You know, it's a hoax. <laughs> this isn't real. But uh, they're kind of joking a little bit, you know, like, hope we don't lose our heads over this, this, you know, this kind of thing. And the captain is saying, you know, I know it's probably nothing, probably going to be just a big waste of your time, but you got to go check it out. We have to go check it out. So, so it just was one of those things where, you know, it was just sort of like, um, you know, his name came up, Kennedy's name came up and, and his partner name came up and they had to sort of that was sort of his introduction to this whole story, you know, and they are going off in the car and they're, you know, again, sort of making these jokes. And it was a very, very hot night. Uh, I remember him saying that. And they get into the apartment. And in fact, when they got to the building, it looked familiar to Kennedy because he said not that long before the Dahmer case broke, um, they'd actually been to that apartment and investigating like a potential homicide. So the building was kind of familiar to him. And um, as they were getting closer and closer to the apartment, uh, they were just hit with this odor, this smell that so many people had complained about, neighbors had complained about, um, Dahmer's caretaker had complained about, like it was just uh, pervasive. So as soon as they kind of smelled this odor as they're approaching, you know, uh, Dahmer's door, they're thinking to themselves, maybe there's something to this. <laughs> you know, like maybe we should, we were, were too quick to make jokes. So they knock on the door and they get in there. And I guess uh, Kennedy's first uh, sort of uh, reaction was this guy on the floor. He said this sort of a disheveled looking blonde man, sort of thin, kind of tall, um, had glasses on his face. And, uh, you know, he was down on the ground. And uh, so they got him up. And uh, so, you know, he was sort of like thinking this guy looks very unassuming, doesn't look like a killer, uh, looked very kind of, you know, aside from being kind of disheveled. I mean, he looked pretty uh, neat and tidy. Otherwise, you know, kind of a clean cut looking guy. But he said the apartment was um, very tiny, very small, and it just smelled <laughs> like it smelled bad. And uh, so the two uh, cops, the two uh, uniformed police officers said, you know, because they were kind of like anxious as well. Like they were sort of like this was nothing that they had ever encountered before. So they said, you know, Pat, you got to go look at the fridge. So even though he'd been kind of warned, like, I mean, the captain had told him there's something about a head in the fridge. And this one other detective is telling him, I don't think it even with all of that prepared him for what he saw. But he just went over, he opened the fridge door and sitting in a box was a severed head, like a freshly severed head. And that was it. I mean, there was a few other things in the fridge, but essentially that was like the main thing. And um, to hear Kennedy describe it, he said, you know, he just felt floored. Like he said, you know, the, the um, hairs on the back of his neck stood up and he just had this fear, like he couldn't believe it. And uh, he felt sort of grounded to the floor. And, and it's a feeling that he said, I can recreate that feeling anytime I want. He said, if I go back, and just think about that moment, I can actually feel it like it's really happening all over again. And this is like 30 years later, you know, uh, 25 years later, let's say. So, uh, so yeah, so I mean, his, um, his feeling was, I think, at that moment of seeing that um, image was, I've, this is nothing I've ever encountered before. This is nothing that I've ever had any experience for. for. And actually, if you think about it, like back in 91, Kennedy was 37 years old. So, I mean, you know, he was experienced, but I mean, he didn't have a whole lot of experience. I mean, he had been in other areas of detective work and had made homicide. Um, but I think in terms of the other guys in that department, you know, he was still a little new, you know, still a bit of a newbie. 
And, um, and you're right, exactly. When the, the, um, the suspect is saying, I want to talk to this particular detective. I think the others were saying, we need to send in someone more seasoned, but the captain said, no, this guy's not, you know, this guy wants to talk to Pat. He's going to talk to Pat. Mm -hmm. And that's the right decision to make. Um, Like as Tom said before, when that rapport is built, when an initial uh, draw or that initial openness to speak to a specific person is there, you follow it. So that was the right move by his boss. Um, right. And he certainly and, sees and they it, but, didn't, you know, they didn't know this at the time, but, um, like Jeffrey was very much the kind of person that any kind of like confrontation or asking questions or whatever, he would just shut down. Like he would just stop talking. <laughs> like he was a very mm-hmm. shy guy, you know, he had no problems, you know, just kind of like being quiet. So the fact that they did that, the fact that they said, you know, let Kennedy talk to him and see what we can get out of him. I think if they had sent in a older, you know, a more uh, angry cop, he probably would have just said nothing mm-hmm. yeah yeah there's, di- there's different interview styles and detectives they often fall into what seems to work for them whether that be uh being hard with somebody or being you know very easygoing and open it, it really is up to the individual and it, it's up to the con- the moment at in at hand who are you speaking to what's their demeanor like but apparently he found a way something about his style, his personality, his demeanor click with, with Jeffrey Dahmer. So he had a lot of conversations with him and a lot of it is documented, but what did he describe to you when you talked about what he took away from Jeffrey in terms of just his personality? Um, some of the things he said, what did he learn about him that maybe isn't in the papers everywhere? You know, people seem to think serial killers are just these crazy people walk around killing people left and right. Well, this is a guy that blended in uh, with the mosaic of Milwaukee. Nobody paid any attention to him. What, what yeah, was his yeah. motivations and mindset and um, likes and dislikes? Tell us what you can can about what you learned from from Patrick Kennedy about him. Yeah, well, I think that uh, I think that Kennedy's assessment of Dahmer uh, was very much what we all kind of have come to know about him, which that you know he was very unassuming, almost boring, like Dahmer was. I mean, uh, you know, he was sort of just like quiet and uh, not very curious, not very ambitious. Um, he had very bizarre tastes and things like the things that he wanted to occupy his time, like this, all, all this business with uh, roadkill and collecting dead animals and being interested in the insides of dead things. Um, Like these were all things that I think Kennedy found to be very bizarre. Like, I think he thought that uh, Jeffrey was a very bizarre guy, but he also said, you know, he was pleasant. He was polite. Um, He said, you know, I've talked to and and interrogated a lot of guys who did a lot less and that were a lot more rude (laughs) about it and Mm -hmm. didn't want to talk and we're not you know please and thank you and and so he found him to be you know like quite unassuming but very polite and and uh, and actually respectful of the police um i think that was kind of how Dahmer was able to operate for so long and actually had those kind of cu- couple of close calls where he could have been caught but wasn't and that was just because uh Dahmer was so deferential you know yes sir no sir just Mr. Polite and uh, no one would suspect him of anything. Um, I think, you know, and this is interesting because I've had a couple conversations with people who say, well, you know, God, Dahmer, I mean, like that was so long ago, what could you possibly learn from that still, you know? And I think, well, one of the things that I've learned from Dom, or sorry, from Kennedy about Dahmer was, you know, these are all issues like bullying, alienation, isolation, you know, kind of feeling like you don't fit in, um, maybe um, having so much time that you can fantasize and then those fantasize, fantasies go dark. 
Um, and in Dahmer's case, he was an alcoholic, which is another thing that Kennedy picked up on pretty quickly. Like, especially that first night, he could see uh, Dahmer coming down from being drunk. And um, so that was the thing that they actually did have in common uh, because Pat was a recovering alcoholic himself. So I think that he just felt that his best approach, and I think he's used this or had used this um, in other times in talking with suspects, was just almost kill them with kindness, you know, just kind of like, just be nice, uh, be respectful, get them a cup of coffee if they want. Do they want a cigarette? Do they want a sandwich? Are they hungry? You know, just kind of ask them a lot of stuff, just make them comfortable. And um, uh, one of the things that Kennedy kept saying was, you know, I'm not here to judge you. That's not my job. My job is just to talk to you, hear what you have to say, tell me what you're going to tell me. And, you know, just answer my questions. Basically, he said, it's not up to me to judge you it's really just to kind of get your story and find out what happened, like find out how all of this happened. Wow. Incredible. Uh, what a skill set, you know, to, to, like you said, maybe not having that much experience in that. I mean, listen, none of us sit down, you know, go to work every day, think we're going to sit down with, with a serial killer, you know, so you're not even really prepared for that, but to, to kind of just hone in on what was sitting in front of him, I think he did a masterful job at, and like Dan said, I mean, the best call in the world is his captain or whoever it was recognizing that he has to start this. Now, if it goes bad halfway through it, then you switch it up and you do what you need to do. But initially, mm -hmm. you know, having uh, the request of him in your mind and, and acknowledging it was a great call. Uh, did Patrick go into in his notes, take us through just how do I say just what happened? Like, how did, listen, he was, you know, I, I was a little taken back when I started, you know, reading a little bit more about this, getting ready for the show that this was a 12 or 13 year process. This wasn't just a crime spree. And he went on a, a killing spree for a couple of weeks. This was over years yeah. that, that he did this. Uh, and the most, the worst criminal in the world is Daniel attest to this is, a patient criminal. They're bad. You know, they, they're a nightmare to deal with. Uh, and when you have a serial killer with that evilness going over that time frame is, is wild. Uh, did Pat go into just tell us about what he was like, how did it all happen? Picking his victims, you know, choosing the victims that he did and how and, and why and all that. Sure. Well, you know, initially, um, and anybody who's watched the Netflix thing about Dahmer will know this, but, you know, initially he had killed a young man when he was like 18, 19 years old. And, um, you know, Dahmer maintained that it was an accident, right? Like he had been out driving in Ohio because that's where he was living at the time. And he saw this hitchhiker who was actually on his way headed west to go to a music festival. And um, he said, hey, you know, I can why don't you come over to my place? We'll have a couple of beers, maybe smoke a joint and listen to some music, whatever. And then I'll give you a ride to your next stop to get to your festival. So the guy said, sure. You know, he had been out hitchhiking. He was trying to get a ride. This guy was offering. So they ended up going to the house that uh, the Dahmers owned in Bath, Ohio. And that's exactly what they did. You know, they opened a couple of drinks and they were kind of, you know, talking, comparing ideas and things about music and just chatting basically and this kid was saying okay i gotta go like i gotta go i've got friends that are meeting me i have to leave and that was something that Dahmer just was not good with like he was not good with people leaving him he did not want to be abandoned and i think all of those things had been 
things that he had struggled with earlier in his life. Like, like his dad was a workaholic. So he, you know, was not home or uh, home a lot. He was working a lot. He was doing research. Um, his mom suffered from mental illness, um, diagnosed mental illness. So there was times when she was in hospital. And so she was not around. Then when she would be at home, she was often medicated or sleeping or the parents were fighting, right? So, so there was a lot of time that Dahmer had to kind of be on his own, and and um, so he and, and he felt did feel abandoned because eventually, once his parents' marriage ended, his mom left and just took the younger brother, left Dahmer at home because he's like, you have to finish high school, so you might as well finish it here. So he had been just left at home. So when this kid, this hitchhiking kid, started saying, you know, I got to go, uh, Dahmer was like, I don't want him to leave. I don't want him to leave at all. I want to have him stay. So they kind of started wrestling and fighting and Dahmer picked up uh, what turned out to be the handle of a of, um, of a weight and he hit him on the head and I think it was really just to sort of like detain him I don't think he meant to kill him but he did he did kill him he hit him in the head so severely that you know he died and um, and I think it shocked Dahmer but at the same time it excited him because what his fantasies had always been about was actually having a a, a lover, a male lover, that he could just do whatever he wanted to do with a person. He didn't really want to be in a relationship. He would say, I want to have a boyfriend or I want to be with somebody and, and have like a relationship. But he didn't really want that. He just really wanted somebody that was completely compliant and was would do whatever he wanted to do. So he kept the body for a little while and then he eventually did dispose of it at that property. But for the longest time, Dahmer was scared. He was just waiting for that knock at the door, that phone call, um, something that was going to say, you know, we know somehow that you were had an encounter with this kid and that you're responsible for his disappearance, but it never happened. And um, so, you know, uh, Dahmer kind of went through this stage of just sort of like thanking his lucky stars and committing himself to being a better person. And I mean, he went through a bunch of stuff. I mean, he graduated from high school. He had kind of washed out of college. He drank his way out of college. Basically it's gotten started, gotten registered, but was drinking all the time. So he got kicked out. Then his parents, his dad and his stepmother suggested, why don't you go into the army? So that's what he did. And he went off and I think initially started off doing pretty well, but then eventually the lure of alcohol came and then he was washed out of that and then discharged. Um, so then he's just started into like a series of uh, dead end jobs. And then, you know, he was kind of going nowhere, but um, his family, his dad especially said, you know what, why don't you go and live with grandma? She could use the help. You could use a little bit of direction. Maybe it'll be a new start for you. And so that's kind of where it ended up. And so, in the back of Dahmer's mind, though, through all of this period of time was always that guilt that he said he felt that, you know, this kid just kind of encountered him and he died. But at the same time, it was it excited him, the fantasy of that and the remembering of it all the time. You know, that was really a turn on for Dahmer. So I think that was like a turning point for him was that he had been just sitting in a library and somebody kind of threw a note at him. It was a man that threw a note at him and said, you know, if you want a blow job, meet me in the bathroom. Dahmer didn't take him up on this offer. But he kind of came away from that experience thinking, you know what, I'm not fooling anybody. He was sort of trying to hide his homosexuality. But he said, it's not working. People can identify me and they know I'm gay. And so I should just, you know, kind of accept it, I guess. And that's really when he kind of got into this dark area where he's like, you know what, I want to meet guys, I want to meet men and uh, do what I want with them. So he did. He started going to gay bars. He started going to bathhouses. But, you know, again, he wasn't really looking for a 
quote unquote, normal relationship. He just wanted a partner. He could just do whatever he wanted to do. There were certain things about gay sex that he liked, some things that he didn't like. And uh, Dahmer was just kind of like, I just want somebody I can just do things with. I want to do things to the body and not have anyone say, oh, stop that. Or that's that hurts or, or anybody to kind of fight, fight him or con- confront him. And um, so he ended up drugging and, you know, drugging people's drinks at the bathhouses and then he got caught. So they said, you know, you're kicked out, don't come back. And then I guess very quickly he realized I don't have to go to a place to meet a guy and do this. I can just bring him back to my apartment. By that time he was living on his own in Milwaukee. And um, so this has began this sort of um, pattern of what, what you would call like bringing these men home. Um, I, initially he just really kind of wanted to keep them. I would, I call them zombie boyfriends, you know, just kind of like keep them drugged and uh, compliant. But eventually he was doing that. They would pass out and then he would strangle them because um, his interest was still, you know, the insides of dead things, right? You know, like he liked the body, he liked doing the things to the body, he liked the muscles and the way things looked on the body, but he was also very interested in the insides of dead things, which was something that was a carryover from his younger days. So, yeah, so I think that, you know, just to go back to your initial question, like I think Kennedy was quite, you know, he was kind of like a, a perplexed by this guy because he says, I have no idea where these dark fantasies and these dark actions are coming from. And when he would even say to Jeff, why didn't you just get a boyfriend? You know, like why didn't you, you know, you're a good looking guy. You're, you know, you don't even have any problems picking up men. Why don't you just get a boyfriend? And, you know, Dahmer could never really answer that. He'd say, well, eventually the person would want to go either want to leave him or they'd want to do something that he wasn't interested in doing. So I think it was just about keeping that lover with him for as long as he could. So did um, Patrick Kennedy ever talk to you about any justification or any rationalization that Jeffrey Dahmer may have made for his actions? Now it's very typical for people to blame, you know, it's human nature. We blame somebody else for our actions did he blame his upbringing? Did he blame his parents? Did he blame alcohol, the military? Was there any, or was it a combination or did he accept full responsibility? Or did he say, I have a mental illness? I mean, I'm just curious what, what was his rationalization? Yeah, I, I think because like that first night, you know, like, I, you know, Dahmer, <laughs> I guess because he had been so cocky in the past and had, had 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 success actually of like kind of talking his way out of trouble, like, you know, when he was a young man and he had that hitchhiker, you know, he was going to actually dispose of the body at the dump and he actually got stopped by a police officer who's like, why are you driving out here so late at night? And and he managed to talk his way out of it and the guy just let him go. And another night where a, a young person had escaped actually the apartment um, and, you know, the police kind of listened to Dahmer and Dahmer said, this is my boyfriend, even though the neighbors were all saying, no, no, this is a kid. You know, uh, he goes to school with my, you know, my cousin's uh, niece or whatever. And, and uh, they police chose to listen to Dahmer because he, I don't know, he just sounded legitimate, I guess. And again, very polite. He wasn't sounding crazy or anything. He was just sort of very calmly explaining, you know, I left my drunk lover upstairs and I went out to get more beer and he escaped. So they wheeled him back, you know, got the kid back upstairs and then Dahmer killed him very shortly after. So I think because Dahmer had had such success kind of talking his way out of things, he was actually shocked when he was in that uh, interrogation room with Kennedy. And Kennedy said, well, we have some people going through your apartment right now. Like (laughs) they're tearing that place apart right now. And he kind of sat up in his chair and said, really? Like he had no idea. He just thought that they would brought him down and, you know, they they just thought they were going to have some questions for him. Um, But I think once he realized that this is it, I'm sort of, um, 
you know, the jig is up and they've caught me. Uh, he just wanted to be honest and he just wanted to sort of tell them everything about it. Um, and I think that um, as far as trying to find excuses for it, I mean, I think uh, – Kennedy, because of his own personal experience with alcoholism, was able to say, you know, alcohol is an inhibitor and it might have made you do some of the things that you might not have otherwise have done. Um, Dahmer's lawyers were also looking in terms of his menta- mental, you know, mental illness and whether there was um, any mental illness there that could have affected why he did what he did. Um, and so I think I don't think Jeffrey kind of or Jeff kind of glommed onto any one thing, but I think he was open to ideas. So he was open to like, hey, maybe I should talk to a psychiatrist because maybe there is something wrong with me. Like, I mean, I knew he knew that there was something wrong with him. He knew that what he was doing was not right. And, you know, he wasn't telling people he was doing it. I mean, he was doing it all very secretively and he was getting away with it because if you think about other serial killers, you know, there's usually, um, like bodies, right? People are finding bodies. And so they know we've got somebody that we got to look out for. Well, in, uh, Dahmer's case, he was disposing them in such a way that, yeah, family members were coming to the police and saying, you know, our brother or husband or cousin is missing, but there was really no trace of anybody. And these guys, you know, the guys that were typically Dahmer's victims were really big, muscular guys. And these are like, police would look at these pictures and say, like, these guys can handle themselves. You know, they're not going to have gotten into any kind of danger, not realizing that there was this serial killer amongst them who was actually um, making these really big, strong guys very docile because he'd invite them into his home. He'd fix them a drink that was laced with drugs and they would pass out, you know. So, so they were, became very easy victims, even though they didn't necessarily look like easy victims. But, you know, I think for the most part, one of the things that really kind of made me another reason why I was interested in writing about Dahmer was because he actually did take responsibility. You know, whether you believe whether he says he's sorry or not, you know, that's up to each individual. But I think he really did feel as though I, the only thing I can do at this point is to help the police identify these guys. Because back in 91, like they had DNA, but I mean, it's not anything like what we have now. Right. And so to, put names to these victims was really important and that they couldn't have done it without Dahmer. So it was really important that they were working with him and keeping him happy and keeping him um, into that feeling of like, you know, you're doing the right thing here, Dahmer, you know, you're doing the right thing at this point. And that goes back again. We keep going back to the initial decision to let Pat do this and you know all the all the positive evidence that came out of this goes back to that initial call of let Pat do this, and you know Dan and I have been involved in in you know interrogations that last hours, and and you hope with every word that you get the confession, you get the details, you get this, and this Pat's determination in it was such that Jeff was talking. And now it was just a matter of time and documenting it correctly because, you know, like you said, he kind of wasn't hiding anything anymore. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to have that focus over that length of time, I mean, you know, it was about what, like six weeks, 16 hours a day, you know, uh, over and over again. And that can get, you know, that's going to take a toll on you. I don't care how, all right, we need to get this guy, the gruesome unbelievable details that he was laying out for Pat has to take a toll on you. Did Pat talk about that with you with that just emotional part of it? You know, we can all be who we are, but after a while it's, it's going to hit you. It's going to take a toll on you mentally. Did, did Pat talk about that as well? 
A little bit. I mean, I think for him, you know, he was really one of these like rock strength guys. <laughs> he was really a rock. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, absolutely. It had to have affected him. And, and uh, you know, I think uh, it, it, I think it affected him in that in the beginning. He's like, you know, this guy loves me. He's talking to me. And, you know, this is like a case that will make a career kind of thing. And it was the people around him, like his family, his wife at the time, particularly who was worried thinking like, this is the kind of case that could drive a person back to drinking. And uh, so she was very concerned about that, uh, that, you know, that he might start to drink again. Um, Pat sort of seemed to be like, no, I'm in control of this. I don't, you know, I'm not worried about it at all. Um, the captain was saying, we want you guys to talk to like a doctor or a psychiatrist afterwards. And, you know, just to be able to unleash, you know, like after you've heard all this and you've spent all this time with this guy, you need to be able to like get it off your chest. And I think actually that's why Pat wrote things out the way he did. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't just sort of a matter of his old reports and his old notes. I think after everything was said and done and they, they took a, uh, Dahmer off to prison. I think he absolutely had to get all this off of his chest. And that's why the writing part of it, um, and writing can be very therapeutic, uh, you know, obviously talking, writing. And I think that that really helped him sort of go through. Um, but he never really stopped thinking about the case. You know what I mean? Cause I mean, and I said this to you guys the other night, um, for years, you know, 25 years later, you know, people are still like, oh, you're the Dahmer detective, you know, like he was recognizable. Kennedy certainly was in Milwaukee, big man, like six foot eight, you know, mm-hmm. big, big guy. So, you know, they knew him. They knew who he was. They knew he was connected with the Dahmer case. Um, I think that probably out of all of it, like I think when they sort of started into the the routine of the day to day that, you know, it kind of like he almost used the word like workman kind of like attitude towards that. We're just going to sit down going to get through as much as we can today, identify as many victims as we can today. But I think that very first night had to have been just amazing because, you know, here he's got this guy, you know, in this uh, terrible smelling apartment, got a head in the fridge. They didn't know anything else. They didn't know about all the different missing men. They didn't know about the cannibalism, the necrophilia. They didn't know any of that. And what it was is Kennedy in this tiny little interrogation room that first night. And every so often he's coming out and getting filled in by the other cops who are saying, guess what we found, or you'll never believe what we saw, you know? And so he kind of had to arm himself with all this new information. It was just kind of breaking, um, you know, and again, um, like police trucks and hazmat are going over to the apartment because they're concerned about what is in that apartment. They see these big drums. They're wondering, are there chemicals? Is there going to be a bomb or explosion that's going to go off? And then the media, like like media trucks started showing up, right? So I kind of, I, I kind of always pictured like him in this little room, the two of them sort of sitting across from each other. And there's just this amazing thing that's going on around them while they're starting to collect the information about what what Dahmer had done and just really basically scratching the surface. The media is picking up on things because they're hearing stories, you know, and, um, and yeah, just sort of this incredible um, energy and also just this horrific feeling of like, what, how, how bad is this going to get? You know, how many victims are we talking about here? So when the story first came out, when it first broke, um, of course, it, it's globally newsworthy that you have somebody who kept a severed head in their freezer, uh, somebody who was drugging and killing people, a serial killer. That that gets headlines right away, and then layers of, of it come out. And one of the layers that came out, and it didn't take very long, was all the missteps by the Milwaukee Police Department that allowed Jeffrey Dahmer to continue to kill. And you made reference to it before that Jeffrey had spoken about how he couldn't believe he got away with some of the things he got away with. But it was a big black eye for the Milwaukee Police Department. They did not look good at all, specifically the one case of the 13-year-old boy who was returned back to him. Dahmer claimed he was 19. They were drinking. Uh, 
a horrifically bad set of uh, missteps by the Milwaukee police officers involved in it that night. Did Patrick talk about what that did to, I mean, his work and what the detectives did by unraveling the life and works of Jeffrey Dahmer helped restore some confidence to the public. That's a big responsibility. Um, You're cleaning up one of your fellow officers' messes, and it was more than one. And uh, so did he ever talk about that, what that felt like, or how much pressure there was internally? I know the media was probably taking pot shots at them every day. Did he mention that kind of stuff to you? Yeah, I think that like most officers in that position would probably feel very um, protective of, you know, of the fellow officers. You know, yes, admitting maybe, you know, yeah, there was maybe some more questions that should have been asked. And Pat did say that, like he said, if it had been him, he felt. Uh, he said, I would have asked a few more questions. Like he kind of felt that, but, but yeah, I, I think you have to also look back at the time in 91. Like we didn't know about a Jeffrey Dahmer prior to that. So, so this was just an unbelievable kind of situation. Nowadays, maybe if you sort of saw a guy in body parts or whatever, you'd put it together a little bit quicker. But at that time it was sort of, um, you know, sort of unbelievable from that point of view. Um, there was a lot of stuff about uh, the training. Like he said, the training that they had at that time was to listen to the person that's talking to you in the community. If you're out there and you're out policing, uh, the ones that sort of make the most sense that you connect with. And so he said, you know, those guys that were there that night with that 13 year old boy, they listened to Dahmer because he looked the most like them. He sounded the most like them. They thought that the neighbors who were getting um, sort of like very upset were actually hysterical. And so they just sort of thought, well, they don't know what they're talking about. And, you know, this guy is very calm, very reasonable, said that he had mentioned that he was just going out for beer, holds up the beer cans, you know, like he just sounded really legitimate. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, he had to ride, ride, you know, yeah, he was getting the story from Dahmer, but he had to ride that wave of, you know, um, embarrassing missteps, the things that were pointed out in the media and the community, like a lot of people felt that this was race related. First of all, a lot of his victims were black, but also in terms of like the, the victims were black. And so how come there wasn't more interest when the family members were coming to say, our loved one is missing. You know, they went off to a party and we've never seen them since. And the police are right. just saying, oh, yeah, you know, he's probably just run away somewhere. He's tired of his life in Milwaukee. And he's just taking a flyer. No one seemed to take seriously the fact that there was these, you know, missing men in the, the community. So it's I think Kennedy was very much of the idea of being protective of the fellow police officers, admitting mistakes had been made. But really, let's look this, at this as an opportunity to train new officers and like t- train and change the way we do things so that we don't ever happen, have anything like this happen again. <laughs> wow. Wow. Uh, and that's, and that's exa- exactly what he did. Like he went on to be, a, you know, continued with the police force for another 10 years. I think he retired in 2001, but then he went back to school. He became a criminologist and he wanted to teach other would-be law enforcement and use the Dahmer case as a way of, you know, cautionary tale, if you will, or here's the things that had been done back then that we don't do that way anymore. You know, um, a lot of people were very, very critical of the police. And I have to admit that I would have been too, because they said, you know, had they actually just taken that extra step and ran his name, they would have seen that he actually had some previous right. convictions, a bit of trouble with the law when it came to young young men. And uh, and they would have done something at that point. But unfortunately, you know, back then it was kind of like, you know, in that uh, Netflix thing they were talking about, they didn't want to stay in his apartment anymore because it was like a, an apartment of a couple of gay guys. Right? So that was their attitude is like, we always want to get out of here as quickly as we can. And uh, so for those kind of things, I think that uh, Patrick 
did say, you know, there was a black eye for sure on the Milwaukee police for, for years to come. But it really served as a pre- preface of, for them to actually make improvements. Right. Okay. Well, there can now, be a tendency you, among all, all people to, to make assumptions based upon past experience, right? How many times have you had somebody hysterical run up to your car when you're a cop and it's turns out to be just drunkenness or it turns out to be just hysteria that's based in no real criminal activity or, or threat? Um, and after a while, you get blasé about it. And um, that came to bite them in this case. Sure. Yeah. Yep. Now, you know what? We... Dan and I, you know, in, in doing cases together and separate, when you're doing an interrogation, sometimes you don't know when to stop <laughs> because you don't know what's going to be said next or or what did you miss and hoping you didn't miss anything. And when you have such a complex case and interrogation going on for weeks and weeks and weeks with what's being told of you, it's a movie. I mean, first of all, you're sitting there thinking this is fake because you, you're you're mm-hmm. thinking that someone can't be this evil that's sitting in front of you that you actually caught. Uh, did Pat, I'm wondering if he, the thought process of when do I stop? Like when's the end of this interrogation? You know, and trying to figure that out and balance that out must've been just a, a mind blow of, you know, do I stop now? And then, and I can just imagine putting myself in that position for a second. You kind of think in your head, all right, I'm done. I think I'm coming to an end. And then Jeffrey says something else. You're like, oh my God. Okay, hold on. And you just yeah, start writing yeah. again, <laughs> you know, so that'll trigger even more of, you know, did, did, was there a discussion or if you, if you know, how did it end? I mean, how do you stop? <laughs> Um, well, I, yeah, I think, I think it was just a matter of, well, I mean, one of the things that I think amazed, uh, Kennedy was that, you know, he had this, uh, Dahmer had this amazing memory. Like, you know, he was sifting right. through these pictures. Oh yeah, this guy, that guy, I met him, you know, he could remember dates and he could remember locations. And, and, uh, so I think that they, and they tested him too, right? Cause they weren't sure, like they didn't know whether he was maybe lying to them, exaggerating, giving them false leads, you know, so they were, were testing him occasionally with different things. And, and he always seemed to pass the test as far as lying. Um, I think that, uh, you know, they sort of thought, okay, he's talking, we'll get him talking. But there were times when he was not lying to them, but he wasn't necessarily um, coming forward with information. And probably the biggest thing was when um, the cannibalism, right? Like he didn't want to talk about that right away and he didn't admit it right away. It wasn't until the medical examiner came to talk to the detectives and said, you know, something's not quite matching up here. Like he's telling you about this many victims and what we're finding and what even what he said he's disposed of and how he's disposed of them, either in the toilet or in garbage bags, something's missing. Like there's something missing here. And they came to the conclusion because of course they'd also been going through his kitchen and his apartment and they were finding like cutlery, cutlery with like encrusted flesh on it. And, you know, um, a big thing on the pot, uh, a big pot on the stove that had some body parts in there. So they kind of came to the conclusion that maybe he had been eating his victims. So they brought that to Jeff and, um, you know, this could have been a thing where they just sort of said, you know, like, how come you never told us this and, and really kind of got mad at him about it. But they just sort of presented it, you know, and they said, well, why didn't you tell us about this earlier? And Dahmer actually said, I didn't want you to think worse of me. <laughs> so 
<laughs> that was kind of his mindset there. But, um, but you know, I, I, I think almost, and I, I kind of pointed it out, and I mean, it was just sort of my opinion, but I said, you know, there wasn't really that much of an age difference between Pat and Dahmer, like only about five years or six years difference. And I kind of thought, you know, maybe at first Kennedy kind of was like a big brother to him, almost, you know, like, because he didn't have that kind of a relationship. He had a younger brother, Dahmer had a younger brother, but he didn't have that sort of older brother. The other thing with Kennedy is that they had the alcoholism, you know, in common. And when Kennedy was first starting out before he became a police officer. And prior to that, he had been a social worker for many years. He had actually contemplated becoming a minister, like a priest. And so I think that idea of the confessional, you know, and, and creating, a, you know, it might be an interrogation room with no windows and, you know, no personality, but he managed to make a safe space for, for Dahmer. And um, so, yeah, so I, but as far, as far as how it ended, I think it was just a matter of like, let's just tick off the victims, you know, like I think they realized, okay, he's got 17 victims. Um, one, they couldn't actually prove. And so they didn't go forward with the case because there was literally nothing left of that victim in Milwaukee. There was no uh, souvenir that Dahmer had left. There was no body part, bones, skull, nothing. There was absolutely nothing. Dahmer was able to say, I met this man. Uh, you know, I brought him back to my apartment. I drugged him. I strangled him and I killed him. But there was absolutely nothing left of him. So they decided that was maybe going to be too ten tentative a case. So they didn't go forward with it. But, of course, there was this big victim nine years earlier in Ohio um, that well, nine years in terms of the difference between that when he would killed that young hitchhiker and then when he had started up again in Milwaukee. They had no clue that there was a victim in Ohio, but it wasn't until he mentioned it. And he said, you know, I actually did kill somebody when I was like a much younger person. And it was this guy and it was in Ohio. And he kind of described the circumstances of how he met and he described what he had done with the body. And so they were actually able to go back so many years later and find, um, I think they found some bone chips and they also found a retainer, you know, part of a retainer, which they were able to identify back to the victim. But they said, we would not have had any idea about that victim in Ohio if it hadn't been for, for Dahmer. So, that's fascinating. You know, serial killers are are by nature serial killers. They they do it to. Uh, they have a compulsion. They kill. Uh, you may catch them, or they may never get caught. You may catch them early in their serial killing sort of career, uh, or you may catch them at a later part. Um, there could be people who have killed 20, 30, 40 people, and and they probably will remember most of them because it's a very big moment to them. But one of the things you you pointed out before that I thought was fascinating, and it's so true. When you talk to someone who is truly um, a criminal or a killer uh, or a rapist or somebody who, who does things that society views as heinous and criminal, they will always hold on to something for their dignity. And now in this case, it seems like he was okay admitting he was a necrophiliac. It's okay to have sex with the dead bodies you just killed, but I would never eat them, right? That's his red line. That's his line in the sand. That no 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 I'm not that guy, and I can't tell you how many anybody who's on this uh, who's listening to this at any point or watching us, you know if you've ever interrogated bad guys, that ninety five or higher percent of them will tell you, but I'm not a bad guy. They always yeah. want to have some yeah. semblance of I'm not the worst you've ever talked to, and it's really odd. It strikes you as odd. And I'm certain Pat had to step out of his own sense of um, right, wrong, his own sense of convictions to sit with a guy like Dahmer and have that rapport where you play along with that to get him to feel comfortable so he can talk. And yeah. you do it in there's times when you feel like you just want to go home and take a shower because I, I just had to enter a whole different twilight zone of yeah. what's right and wrong and what's acceptable. 
And I had to right. do it convincingly. So that's part of interrogating that that takes a little while. And at times, it, we've laughed about it many times talking about, yeah, this guy did all this stuff. And then he said to me, I'm not a bad guy. No, you're not. Of course not. Anybody would have <laughs> did what you did in your circumstance. Uh, and you can't be too gratuitous there's, there's about it. There's two Jeffreys, right? Believable. The good Jeffrey, the bad Jeffrey. Yeah. Right. <laughs> just, you know, he's not a bad guy. He's just misunderstood. Uh, but he would yeah. never go as far as cannibalism. That's crossing a line. Uh, it, it just, it just struck me as it's a common theme among murderers and people like that. They hold on to that one thing that they, oh, I I didn't do that. You know? Yeah. Uh, Well, you know, interesting that you say that, Dan, because I mean that they, at one point, you know, they, of course, when they realized that they had Dahmer and, and, uh, that he was a bad guy and he'd committed a lot of crimes, you know, they kind of do that timeline, right? Like, that's okay. Well, where was he in all this different time prior to, us catching him. So, you know, they're investigating different places where he had lived and the times that he lived there and where there are there bodies or deaths that had not been accounted for at that time. So when they realized that when he got out of the army, he had been sent to Miami, it was around the same time that um, Adam Walsh had gone missing. And so when they realized, you know, severed head and he had been in the same area, they were wanting to talk to him about Adam Walsh. And so they came, the wow. two FBI agents came and talked to, uh, first of all, talked to Pat and his partner, and then they wanted to talk to Dahmer. And Dahmer was actually offended. Like, he's like, that's a little kid. Like, they showed him a picture of him. That's a little child. Like, I'm not interested in kids. And uh, Pat actually had to remind him and said, well, what about that one boy who was like 13? Well, I thought he was older. He looked older to me. And he truly believed that. He said, I thought he was like 17 or 18 years old. But, um, you know, the idea of like, I can do all these other things, but I certainly wouldn't hurt a kid, you know? Right. <laughs> morals <laughs> a whole different standard a whole wow. different standard so based upon your knowledge of what pat learned uh, during his interrogation and what the investigation yielded do you think or is there still a belief that there were other victims of jeffrey Dahmer that were not tied to him you know i i tend to believe what pat believed and he said you know i think that I think that Dahmer came clean with us because I think it, like once you get to like 16, 17 victims, you know, like, you know, you've already admitted that much. Like, I'll tell you about victim number 17, but number 18, you know, that's off limits. I think they felt that he really needed to unburden himself at this point. Um, I mean, I'm sure there are people who think, oh, there's other victims that they don't know about and that he only talked about those ones that they could somehow piece, you know, but I don't know. I just, I just think that he really did want to come clean. Like he really did want to sort of tell his story. Um, I don't think it was about amounts of body, you know, a body count. Like, I don't think it was like, oh, well, I want to have the most. Um, I think it was more just that, you know, you caught me. And if I can bring some peace to the family members of these people who I killed, you know, I'll do that. That's the least I can do. So I, I tend to believe that he was pretty honest about, you know, but I've heard other things like they were saying, well, there were victims maybe when he was in uh, Germany, when he was in the army and stationed there, you know, so I, I don't know. I, I tend to think that, though, that he did tell the police everything and that, you know, he told them about all the victims. Wow. So there comes a point in time when the when now they have to go to court. Now the trial starts. Uh, and I'm sure pat is the center of the trial other than jeffrey uh what was said about that his notes uh any recollection you have with with a conversation with the trial process because now pat's got to take everything he got from jeffrey and talk about it it's not just writing notes down anymore now he's got to explain it uh and that's a whole 
another level of emotions, another level of expertise that he has to get Jeffrey's words into the heads of jurors now. Uh, take us through that with, with Pat's recollection or your recollection through Pat of the trial. Uh, well, initially, yeah, uh, Kennedy was, uh, you know, uh, told and was convinced that he was going to be testifying. There was some sort of a mix up or some sort of a decision kind of at the last minute where they said, you know what, we're going to put um, Dennis Murphy on, <laughs> who's Pat's partner and the more, the more seasoned of the two detectives. They said, we're just going to let him testify. And Kennedy, you don't you don't have to testify. And I think he was actually quite offended. He was a miffed. You know, he's like, you know, I've spent all this time with this guy and I kind of feel like I got to know him really well and I think I can present him really well to the jury. Um, and then at, very, at the very last minute, they said, okay, no, Kennedy, you go up. And so he had an opportunity where he could have actually taken like a binder of information with him up to the stand. But um, he chose not to because he said, I want to these um, jurors and everyone else here to realize how much I studied the case and how much, you know, it wasn't just a matter of taking the guy's story, but he said, I really, you know, I, I purposely remember everything about what he told him, told us. And uh, so that was his coverage, actually. Like when he was in court, they were asking him questions about uh, probably that first night, as well as just in terms of, you know, him telling all of these things and um, coming clean with all of the victims that he had, um, that he had uh, killed. And I guess also too that idea of like, you know, was he sort of, doing anything that made you think that, you know, he wasn't of his right mind, you know, like, does it seem like he was sane? Cause that's really what it was like a guilt, um, Dahmer, you know, he confessed. And so he was found guilty, but it was really a matter of whether or not he was going to be found insane or not. So, so his trial was really about his sanity. He didn't put up a defense to the killing. He admitted he did the killings. Uh, he had already spent days, weeks chronicling that, Backing away from that would be right, impossible. Right, yeah. And I mean, and as part of his own defense, too, like he wasn't saying, well, I'm stark raving mad. He had his lawyers saying to him, we want you to be interviewed. And so he said, well, maybe there is something wrong with me. Maybe there was a reason why I did what I did. But, um, you know, I, I don't think there was anything that they could find, you know, mentally that would have caused him to commit the crimes that he did. I mean, he had a lot of personality problems, <laughs> to say the least, uh, you know, yeah. issues with fantasy and, and other problems as well. But um but, you know, he wasn't he wasn't sort of um, mentally ill by the standard that you would need. That, that's amazing. That's interesting. Um, on the surface, the average person would look at that and say, you have to be crazy to do that. But it's a whole different uh, level, a whole different type of evaluation that's done for a court for legal purposes by professionals. And we're not professionals. Um so well, and, and that was, you know, uh, Kennedy and I did talk about that because I, I said to him, like, you know, did you think that he was crazy? Like, even if even if the psychiatrists and the doctors didn't come to any kind of like a, a single conclusion, I was curious about Kennedy's opinion on it. And he said to him, or said that he thought he was crazy because he said to have those kinds of desires, to have those kind of fantasies, not just that you're wanting to think about it, but that you want to act upon it, that you want to actually cut open a body, that you want to eat a body, that you want to have sex with with a dead body to him those were that's what makes a person crazy was those wanting to do them and doing them wow now was patrick Sounds logical to me uh, <laughs> <laughs> was patrick still alive when Dahmer got killed yes in prison yeah. yes how did that go uh you, you know what actually i think kennedy he said you know he was 
he, he said there was sort of a sadness about it because he said, you know, he didn't dislike Dahmer. Like he said, Dahmer was nice to him. Like they talked and they, you know, in between their interrogations and interviews and stuff, like they, you know, would crack jokes and talk about things that were in the newspaper. Um, uh, you know, they had lunch together several times. So, so you know, I, I don't think he hated Dahmer. Like I don't think he... I mean, I remember when I first mentioned about, you know, the relationship between Dahmer and Kennedy, he kind of bristled because he's like, I don't think we had a relationship. But in the end, he kind of realized that they did. You know, it was kind of a friendship. Right. He didn't maintain any kind of like correspondence or go visit him or anything like that. He said that would have been wholly un inappropriate. But he said, you know, he was cared about him like he was you know concerned like how he was making out in prison they were hearing rumors that um Dahmer wanted to go from being in isolation to going into the general population and they all agreed they said that's a death sentence you know he shouldn't do that uh because he's so notorious that he will get killed um so I think from that point of view he was sort of you know concerned about Jeff's safety and thinking that that shouldn't happen in prison you know you go to prison to be punished but you know you mm -hmm. should be killed in prison um they don't have a death penalty in uh, in Wisconsin, or they didn't at that time anyway. And uh, so I think he was actually sad to hear that what had happened to him. And he was quite, Kennedy was quite taken. I remember him telling me a couple of times, quite taken with the fact that when they discovered Dahmer's body, like he had no defense wounds at all. Like he said, if you're being attacked, if someone's hitting you with something, like the guy that killed him in prison actually coincidentally killed him with the weight, like a, a handlebar of a weight, which is the very first um Right. instrument of death that Dahmer had used so many, many years earlier. Right. But um, he said Dahmer didn't have any bruises on his arms. He didn't try and block any of the, the blows. He just kind of stood there and took it. Um, so he said, you know, like, I guess in his mind, he realized, you know, like when he made that order, when he actually signed that desire to be put into general population, he must have known that his time was going to be you know, his days were numbered. And so I think there was sort of a sadness about that, you know, not that he didn't think that Dahmer deserved to be in prison for the rest of his life. You know, he did deserve that. He said, you know, Dahmer, for all that he was, he said he was just really a very selfish man. You know, his orgasm was more important than those victims' lives is basically what it kind right. of boiled down to. So, you know, I think he was, I don't think he was surprised that, Ken, that uh, Dahmer was killed, but I think he was kind of sad, right. actually. I think he thinks actually too, they could have learned so much more about him. I mean, he was only in prison for about three and a half years. Like he went in and then a few years later he was killed. I think that they thought that he could have, they could have learned more about, you know, the makings of Dahmer. Right. Sure. Oh yeah. So as to, so oh, as to yeah. be able to identify um, people in the future who are exhibiting such behaviors before they go on to kill. Yeah. Right. Well, especially because Dahmer was so forthcoming, you know, like if people asked him mm -hmm. questions, he answered right. them, you know, like he was not one to say, well, I don't want to talk to you guys or you're the experts. You don't need me. Like he was really willing to talk to, uh, you know, anybody who wanted to talk to him. I think he was very curious about, you know, his own behavior and the decisions that he had made and what pr prompted him to do the things that he did. Wow. Wow. Robin you know Maharaj. I, I would have loved to have, yeah, Go ahead, Tom. I would have loved to have had a uh, video of those interrogations because, you know, nowadays, then it would be a clinic yes. on how to do an interrogation. Right. Because, you know, everything that you described, Robin, with what he wrote down in his notes of doing and, and your recollection of what he told you is just textbook to get whoever it is in front of you, the, the worst serial killer in history killing your family, whatever, the point is to get that person to trust you, to bring them down to a certain level, and to get what you need from them, however it may be. 
and he did everything correctly, you know, to obtain that. I mean, you know, like I said, you're not waking up going to work every day thinking you're going to interview Jeffrey Dahmer. Right. And for him to do that was incredible. And your, you know, somewhat participation in his memory is just so great. It's fascinating. Listening to you, it's like listening to Patrick. You know, your your description and everything, and it's it's like listening to him. And you should be really, really proud of yourself oh, with thanks. this book and what you've done for, for Patrick's memory. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I really yep. wanted it to be a leg. Like, I don't know whether had he lived and we worked on it together, I don't know whether he would have wanted me to put this in there. But because he had passed away, I thought, you know, this is an opportunity for it to be a legacy for his kids, his family, his grandkids, and also a little bit to tell us the story. So I did put a little bit of his own background, you know, what his life was prior to the Dahmer case and life after the Dahmer case. And uh, right. yeah, just a little bit of a biography of him. He was a very special, you know, detective. We didn't know each other very long, but, uh, but he was definitely a very good friend and I, I really cared for him and I was so appreciative of him sharing the story with me he was so open he was so willing to talk about it and uh, and I think it would have you know had he lived I, I just wish he had seen the the final product of it because um you know it's it's all his story yep well you you did him and you did his family great honor but you also shared uh an inside look at what it's like to be a true professional thrust into a role that the world is watching at a moment that you least expected it and to rise to that occasion as he did. And um, it, it's something for all of us who, who have ever done that kind of work to look at Marvel and say, that's how it's done. That's the way it's done. Right. So we, we like to yeah. highlight that kind of work in those types of cases on this show. And Robin, we cannot thank you enough for coming in, uh, sharing your recollection your memories what you've learned um and it's just been an honor having you here and and thank you so much and we can't wait please tell well, everyone thank about you. your book I, and I any loved, other stuff that i you love have going the on. idea of your sh- yeah I love the idea of your show. And as I had said earlier, like I love detective stories. So um, to really tr- truly uh, show the hard work that goes in and the sacrifice that goes in and, and uh, the things you uh, fellows miss out on because you're really, you know, the determination that you have to do the job and, and uh, yeah, those, those personal sacrifices and, um, and the, the toll that it will take, you know, like we, we talked a little bit about how it might've affected uh, Kennedy throughout the rest of his life. And um, I, many of the detectives, I've ever talked to, you know, they have those cases that, uh, that have deeply impacted, you know, their outlook and, and, uh, their, their, uh, view of the job for sure. Yep. Well, the world or people in general, So you're right. <laughs> so Dan, uh, you know, we're, we say it again, you know, we, we keep finding these guests and, and I don't know, Robin actually <laughs> fell right into our lap, uh, <laughs> literally, uh, in it. You know, so we we have this thing that's going and uh, we get these guests that just blow us away. I mean, literally, Amazing. Robin, I sat here just marveling at your story and recollection of of the book and his notes and became a fan. Dan says a lot, you know, with, with shows that we do and you end up just sitting here just taking in everything you're saying, trying to figure a question out for you. And, <laughs> you know, your work is, uh, is just incredible. The book, your, uh, your memory for Patrick and, uh, you know, it's just tip your hat to you. 
You're uh, thank you a very true much. Professional. It was absolutely a labor of love. Like you know, uh, you know, when you're a writer, you know, it's yeah, it's exciting to have a book, but you know, really, it was a labor of love because um, I thought, you know. Uh, it, he had this heart attack. He passed away. And in fact, this is sort of a weird coincidence, but I had a heart attack when I was 36. And it was the actual date, like the date, April 18th, that he died from his heart attack. It was the same date that wow. I'd had my heart attack six years wow, earlier. Wow. And uh, so, I mean, it was, uh, it, it kind of bonded us almost. And I was so devastated when I learned of his passing. And and uh, I was just so committed to getting his story out there, you know, because I thought, you know, he can't have his story shelved just because he's not here to tell it. So um, it was really an honor to work, uh, work on his story. And if it can Good help other you, people, you. help other detectives or help other people who are interested in true crime with a better understanding and, uh, you know, then that's just icing on the cake. <laughs> yep. Very well, good. We can't thank you enough, and uh, we will look forward you to guys. your uh, to other work that you put out because we know there'll be more. We want to stay in touch. We'd love to have you back on the show at some point. And um, sure. all the well, best. I'd love to, to talk you, to Robin. you guys about your stories. You guys can do good. You guys, if you have, have a, a collection of stories that you could put into a book, so we'll have to talk. We we I'd can follow up with that. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to help you tell your stories. So. Yeah. yeah, for sure. <laughs> we could, we could do that. Sure. There definitely. you go. We'll keep in touch. We'd love to work with you. We'd love to work with you. Yeah. So um, yeah. We, we will let you go. Get back to your life. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, we know this is going to be this is a compelling show. People will love this one. So thank you again. You honor us. Tom, well, you thank always you. take us I out. Really appreciate I'll, it. I'll, oh, you're welcome, Rob. You always take us out. And um, we'll look forward to our next show. But this is going to be a tough one to beat. Tough one to beat. That's for sure. Oh yeah, uh, you know we're just we're we're thrilled to have uh, people like Robin in our in our world in our Gold Shields world now, and and you know Robin knows that once you get into the world of NYPD detectives, you're stuck with us. That's, That's it. it. You, we we don't go away. <laughs> don't I love it. Uh, you know the text the messages and holidays. All, yep, all that. <laughs> uh, but we just want to thank you again, and and a marvelous show. You should be proud of yourself. Patrick's proud of you, without a doubt, sitting on your shoulder, uh, probably why you went through this and and even now. So his memory is alive in your work. So great job on that. And thank you so much for being here. And like we always do, uh, say a prayer for the law enforcement officers throughout this world and in this country and their families. Uh, they do a hard job and they do a dedicated job that sometimes doesn't show up in the newspaper or on the news, you know, uh, six weeks, 16 hours a day doesn't show up on the news that Patrick had to do to this case. And, and he's not the only one It happens on a daily basis throughout this country. And we have to remember that and keep these officers in our prayers. So, uh, fist bump them in the store, wave to them on the street and, uh, say thank you when you can, uh, for Robin, for Dan, Thank you again for another great show. And don't forget, uh, youtube.com slash at Gold Shields. Hit that subscribe button. Hit the like button and uh, keep us going. And uh, thank you again. And everyone out there, please stay safe. 